0: Well, hello again, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm super excited to have another bonus episode for you guys with an interview with someone I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from. This interview is with Kaylee, who has the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. She is passionate about decreasing delirium and sedation in ICU and ventilated patients. So if you are at all interested in critical care or in the subject of ICU delirium, then you definitely want to pop in those earbuds and hear what Kaylee has to say. So let's dive into the interview. So Kaylee, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you are passionate about as it comes to sedation and immobility with these critical care patients. Thanks so much, Maureen. I'm really excited to be on your
1: show. I'm Kaylee Dayton. I am an ICU nurse practitioner. I started my career as a nurse in an ICU that I now call in my podcast the Awake and Walking ICU. And like many of your students, maybe I did not realize how significant that was going to be. Um, That was my first job as a nurse. I didn't know anything else. So they even asked me in the interview, would you be willing to walk patients that are on the ventilator? And I was just so excited to be having a job interview that I said, yeah, totally. Of course. Absolutely. Really. I was excited to learn anything they could teach me. So when I started there, it was just completely normal to have almost every patient awake, texting on their laptop, writing on uh, a whiteboard Communicating, walking on the ventilator, sitting in the chair during the day. It was just so normal that no one really explained to me that that was probably the only ICU in the whole world that did that to that extreme. So I got really comfortable with that process of care. And then after a few years, I left to be a travel nurse. And immediately, the first contract they took, I was immersed into this culture of deep sedation and immobility, meaning every single patient that was on a ventilator was under deep sedation. They were in a medically induced coma and everyone called it sleep. They were just sleeping. And it felt really weird to me, but I, as a nurse, I didn't really understand what the big deal was, but I would ask because I was wanting to get them up and moving because that was part of my process of care. I'd ask them, can I wake them up and, and walk them? And they would look at me like I was crazy. And I even got questions as to whether or not I was actually an ICU nurse, if I had actual ICU experience. And they would say, no, because they're on the ventilator. And wow. I'd say, no, no, but why are they sedated? And they say, because they're intubated. And I'd say, no, that doesn't make sense. But I, I see that they're intubated, but why are they sedated? We just would go in these circles and we couldn't speak each other's languages. And I just, I had so much opposition and I and I didn't know how to defend myself. I didn't know the research literature I just went with the flow. After a while, I just kind of gave up, and so every contact I took, I just braced myself for this weird world. And I, I'm, I missed patients. I missed being able to know who they were, miss being able to communicate with them, interact with them. Um, and I still didn't understand the big picture, right? So I just did what was normal there, did the best of my ability, and I went back to that ICU when I went to grad school. And started working there as a nurse again, because that was what was so comfortable to me. And then I saw how different these patients were coming out of their critical illness. So even in grad school, even getting my doctorate in acute care nursing practice, we did not talk about what medically induced comas really do to patients. Wow. We didn't talk about immobility. None of that was discussed. And even in you know, these classes, we'd be going over case studies and they talk about patient with severe pneumonia and the ED that had to be put on a ventilator and then started on sedation and then started on other medications to combat the effects of sedation. And I would be looking around at my classmates, at my professors, wondering if anyone else was concerned with what they were hearing and everyone else just thought it was totally normal. And I remember one day, day I even had a meltdown. I threw my hands on the desk and I said, stop, we have to talk about this. Why are they starting sedation on that patient in this case study? And I remember the room went dead silent and everyone turned around and looked at me like I was speaking French. And they straight out said, this is in class because they're on a ventilator. Of course they have to be on sedation. And I had to say, No, I have worked in the certain ICU for seven years and almost everybody is awake on the ventilator. this I don't know what's going on here, but this is wrong. I still could not defend what I was saying. And so as I started looking into the literature, the studies, the research, I kept realizing what is actually happening to patients and kept thinking, you know what? Our good people, our good, good nurses don't really understand what's going on with patients. And so that's what led me to start the podcast and start this business, I guess, where I'm doing webinars with ICU teams um, and uh, doing private consultations for families as well to help people apply their research to their ICU patients to help them have better outcomes.
0: Wow, that is an amazing story. I'm sitting over here with my jaw dropping. Um, So interesting. So I love that experience you had was completely the opposite of the one that I had as a nurse because I started at an ICU with that sedated, immobile patient. So for me, the culture shock was switching to having patients be less sedated, having patients mobilizing and getting up and moving. But I think I like your way better. (laughs) And because you've seen the difference and you understand the literature, I mean, the research. So
1: I think I slept through some research classes when I was in my undergrad. Um, I I know that I knew that research was important, but mm-hmm. it didn't really become alive to me until I came across this problem, and I wanted to solve it. And the the key was in the research. And nurses have the power to change practices through the research. That's why you take evidence based practice classes. Exactly. Getting your bachelor so that you know that so that when you come into these problems where there's differences in practice and you want to know is that the right thing or is that just the normal thing is that evidence based or cultural based
0: Exactly yep
1: you as a nurse can go back and look into the research and then advocate for those changes with the science behind you
0: I love that I love that so looking at problems right i always tell the students that the nurse's role i mean essentially if i had to sum it up in one sentence it would be nurses see problems and they fix them like that's my job. Mm-hmm. um and and a lot of students who might be new may not understand. So I would love it if you would talk a little bit about what's the big deal if someone's sedated? What's the big deal if they're, quote sleeping or or just lying in bed for four or five days a week while they're on the ventilator? Why not just let them rest?
1: That is a great question, and I think the answer is actually the key to changing the culture the problems that we don't know as a culture, as an ICU community, as a nursing profession, we're not being taught, we're not being informed of what it's actually like for patients during and after their medically induced comas and what's happening to their brains and their bodies during that process. So we call sedation sleep. We tell family members, we tell each other that the patient's asleep, that we're given a medication so that they sleep. Mm -hmm. But if you look into the research, if you look at to what's happening to the brain activity through EEGs, the brain is extremely disrupted. So the brain activity does not resemble sleep. Those brains are not sleeping. So that's one of the problems is we deprive patients of sleep when we put them in medically induced comas. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure your nursing students can relate. They probably had some sleepless nights, some <laughs> really sleep deprived moments in their lives, right? That's yes. nursing school. But imagine during this critical illness when they already have so much inflammation, they're fighting infections and then they do not get sleep for days to weeks on top of it. So that's likely one of the reasons that patients experience acute brain dysfunction or a brain injury, which is what we call delirium. Mm-hmm. So sedation causes delirium. And if you, your nursing students have been doing clinicals or their CNAs. They may have seen patients that are really confused. They can be really combative or they yes. can be really lethargic. Yes. Um. They might be able to answer questions as far as what their name is, but they don't know where they're at. They think they're in, they might think they're in a grocery store or they oh, might yeah. think
0: they're in enemy territory. I've had patients tell me they are, I mean, just in the most out there random situations and it's, heartbreaking to think someone is so fully immersed in this delusion that they fully believe it. And a lot of them, like you said, feel um, a great sense of fear for their well-being and safety because they think they're in a dangerous situation.
1: Oh, Maureen, it's so sad. So one of the first things I did in my podcast, some of the first episodes, is I asked um, people in a survivor group, so an IC survivor group, I just said, what did you experience in your medically induced comas. I didn't give him any cues. I didn't ask about delirium, hallucinations, nothing. I just said, here's a Google number. Leave a voicemail. Tell me what you experienced under sedation. Wow. And all they talked about was thinking they were being buried alive, (gasps) that their kids were kidnapped, that they were being raped, general mutilation, stabbed, wars. I mean, just the most gruesome things. And it seemed like they took stimulation sounds, Feelings, things from their environment that were actually happening. And it all got twisted into something far more morbid than the ICU could have ever done wow. to them. That's horrifying. And that is what their PTSD is from. So post-ICU PTSD is strongly correlated with sedation. Wow. With ICU delirium. So I think culturally, we as nurses, we think the more comfortable they look the more comfortable they are. They, they are co- tucked in cozy in their sheets. Mm-hmm. All their lines are perfectly in order. Oh, we,
0: we're very control-ish over those things, yes. right, as critical care nurses. If the patient looks good and everything's in order, everything must be in order. But what's going on inside sounds absolutely horrific.
1: Absolutely. And so when we, we move towards these practices, and so now we're telling nurses – Give patients a break from sedation, give them a vacation, take down the sedation, see what their brains are doing. Because really, if someone's sedated for weeks, you don't know if they've had a a stroke, right? So the COVID-19 patients, there are high rates of strokes, right? But no one knows because they're not doing neurological assessments because they're sedated. So anyway, so nurses are saying, okay, fine, We'll, we'll wean down the sedation, but then they see them come out thrashing their arms, trying to pull out their breathing tube, trying to pull out their IVs. And it's really hard to see. Mm -hmm. It stresses us out. It's dangerous for the patient. You can see the tear in their eyes. And so they feel like that is inhumane. And so they hurry and turn the sedation back on, not knowing that that is the very thing that caused that kind of tear. It's a vicious cycle for sure. Yes, absolutely. And so, um, so we're talking about ICU delirium. So sedation causes ICU delirium, post-ICU PTSD. And when brains get that injured, that disruptive, they don't just recover. So th- they end up with a post-ICU dementia. So cognitive impairments, these people are often, especially ARDS, patients like COVID-19 patients, they're l- not likely to go back to the jobs that they were doing before. It makes it really difficult for them to resume work when they can't think straight, when they can't Um, utilize their memory when they can't focus, they can't process, they don't have executive function in their minds. Um, That's one of their biggest complaints is they've lost who they are because they can't read a clock because they can't balance their checkbook because they can't text. They don't have fine motor skills. Their brains are injured. They come out with brain injuries, likely from sedation, delirium, the whole thing that we've subjected them to. And then beyond the brain and the psychology of it all, when we don't move a muscle for days to weeks, we lose them. Correct. Yeah. So we, there's a disuse of the muscles, the massive muscular atrophy, but one of the startling things is the sedation, the very medications that we give those alone injure and disrupt the muscles. So even if you don't just have absolute disuse, we're giving medications that cause the muscles to break down. And when the muscles break down, it triggers this huge inflammatory response Mm -hmm. and can lead to multi-organ failure. So really, we're making patients much sicker with sedation. Um, But we've just assumed that it's automatic. So
0: the second someone gets a breathing tube placed, we automatically start sedation. Oh, yeah. The next question is, what do you want for sedation? Like when you're at the bedside with the team and they're intubating a patient, what do you want for sedation? And it's rarely, you know... from what I've observed, the answer is rarely "let's just wait and see." The answer is usually, you know, propofol, fentanyl, versed, whatever, maybe Presidix. Um, But yeah, it just seems like that's just the go-to. You know what? Nurses can make a huge difference in that. Nurses are mm-hmm. patient advocates.
1: I did an interview with one of our physicians at the Awake and Walking ICU, and he was new. He had just come out of his fellowship and started in this ICU. So habitually, after he intubated his first patient. He turned to the nurse and said, okay, what do you want for sedation? And she looked at him and said, never say that again. (laughs) So she quickly shut that down. And she said, we just don't do that here. I'm going to see what my patient needs first. Nice. And so nurses can be the advocate and nurses can ask patients what they want and inform them. You know, when we do informed consents for sedation or for being on the ventilator, Mm -hmm. we're not telling patients. The truth. We're not telling them, here are your risks. If we deeply sedate you, what do you prefer? We're not telling them that, which goes against nursing ethics. So I think nurses can be a huge um, game changer in this culture.
0: Right. So I, I guess I have a question for you, for someone who's done a lot of work in this area is like you were saying, when you see that patient who looks uncomfortable, it makes us uncomfortable, right? Like the thing that stresses me out the most at the bedside is if my patient is stressed in some way. So, when you have a patient who's maybe they've just been intubated and you know they they come around from the rapid sequence medications that we give to relax the muscles so that they can be intubated as they come around from that a lot of times It's shocking to the system, right? So they're coughing, they're kind of gagging on the tube. They look uncomfortable. What kinds of things can we do to make intubation more comfortable for patients that does not involve putting them into a medically induced coma? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Um, And I think we have to recognize that when we automatically start sedation and we automatically give patients delirium, then when we try to wean back the sedation... And we unmask the delirium that we've created. Mm -hmm. That's when we have massive uh, agitation. Yes. And it's really scary and it's very stressful. And I think that's mostly what you're referring to. Mm -hmm. Um, There is such a difference usually when we allow patients to wake up right after intubation. So it's like they've had a really short colonoscopy. That's the kind of condition they've received. Mm -hmm. And initially it is startling to have a breathing tube down your throat. Depends on the situation, you know, some, some intubations are extremely emergent. You don't get to prepare your patients. You don't get to talk to them about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oftentimes you can, right? A lot of these COVID-19 patients are on high flow nasal cannula, then BiPAP, and then, you know, then they're intubated. So you have a chance to talk to them about it and say, Hey, here's what we're going to do. Here's what the breathing tube's for. Here's what the ventilator is. Um, and so oftentimes when they come out of that intubation, you can just remind them of where they are. hmm what, what you talked about 20 minutes before, under normal circumstances, we have the family right there, which is key to help them calm down, feel relaxed, trusting. Um, you can have a mirror so they can look in the mirror and see what's down their throat. Oh, that's you a great the idea. Um, the, the huge difference is, Maureen, is that they're more likely to have their coping mechanisms with them. When mm-hmm. someone's delirious, you can't say, calm down, you're in the ICU, that's a breathing tube. No. They have no idea what's going on. But when we preserve their capacity to be rational, we can rationalize with them and they can stay in control. They can write down their questions. Um, they're more protective of their breathing tube than we are sometimes wow. they'll write on a board. Careful with my breathing tube. They've they'll protect it. And so um, that's one of the things is to prevent delirium. When you prevent delirium, you prevent a lot of suffering, a lot of agitation, a lot of stress for everybody and a lot of safety issues. Another thing is to communicate when I consult with. ICU teams right now, one of the questions is what do you say to them? Because mm-hmm. they're not used to talking to patients anymore, which I'm excited to have new fresh nurses in there that are used to talking to patients or actually want to, and that won't be so concerning. They don't have these, you know, years of experience with just having to say to patients. They're gonna be comfortable talking to people like they're human. Right. And I think that's gonna be a huge advantage. And so just talk to them, ask them, are you in pain? Are you anxious? Explain to them what's going on. Give them some time to adjust to it. Um, and if they if they are delirious, you know there are lots of causes of delirium. Someone with sepsis, septic shock, that alone can cause delirium. Not everyone's going to know exactly what's going on. You can do lighter sedation, like presidix. We can do things like clonopin some like you know anti anxiety medications down their feeding tube. Mm-hmm. That can help curve the edge off without making them comatose, because only things to really help delirium, our family, mobility, and sleep. But if you automatically jump to sedation, then you're going to deprive all of those tools to prevent and treat delirium. So this whole movement is to humanize the ICU. So treat them like they're human. See what their problems are. Answer their questions. Utilize their family. Ask them what kind of music they like. What will help them? Let them be involved in that process because they know themselves. The family knows them, and they're going to know what they really actually need rather than just to mask their anxiety because sedation is not going to fix that fear that they're having.
0: Right. And, and again, a lot of times we mask their anxiety because it gives us anxiety and makes us really uncomfortable. So it's almost like you have to kind of get okay with being a little bit uncomfortable at first with this process. And
1: I, um, One of my colleagues just sent me a picture that a patient on high ventilator settings who should be really uncomfortable wrote uh, on the board, um, you just have to accept the tube as your friend and then it gets more comfortable.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: And so I I started asking people on the ventilator because I've never been intubated. And so when I was having all these questions by listeners and people I was talking to around the world, I I couldn't answer them because I can't speak from personal experience. So I'd go to my patients and I'd say, are you really uncomfortable? Do you want to be sedated? You know, and they would they would say, "Do not sedate me. I am fine." Tell them to be up in the chair during the day. Tell them to let patients speak for themselves. They were writing these things on the board as they're wow. on the ventilator.
0: I love that. And so they know better than we do. That is amazing. Up in the chair. I mean, that is huge. Um, for those of you that are new to the podcast, or maybe haven't been listening to a lot of the episodes, I did one very recently about immobility. So go and check that out if you need a little primer on the dangers of immobility, because everything that we are talking about stems from that and keeping patients mobile is so, so important. So I want to ask about, so it sounds like you do consulting with ICUs, right, to help them get from sedated to awake and walking. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. So I know from having gone through a process like this, it's not just that one day you decide I'm going to start walking my vented patients. It takes a whole team. So can you talk a little bit about the team members, the process, what it takes to make this happen?
1: Absolutely. This is what we call multidisciplinary, but I also prefer to call it interdisciplinary. Everyone has to be on the same page. So one nurse can bring the change, but everyone has to understand the why behind it and the how. And so um, when we talk in critical care conferences about this, physicians will say, oh, well, we can't get our teams to do that and just shut it down. Mm-hmm. And that makes me crazy because I believe in our clinicians. I especially believe in nurses. So when they put it on to nurses, I just want to slap some hands and say, you don't know the nurses that I know. And they don't give enough them enough credit. So with my consulting services, I'm finding so much more success when we pull in dietitians, respiratory therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, pharmacists, MDs, NPs, PAs, and the nurses all together in one room because that is, that is the team. Everyone has a say. Everyone has a part to play in this mm-hmm. and everyone can bring this. So I have dietitians bringing me in for webinars with their teams which is such a cool culture shift because it usually it used to be that everyone just worked in their own silos and their right. own departments, respiratory therapists are in charge of the ventilator nurses are in charge of the medications that, you know, it, it, it's not that way anymore, or at least should not be that way. So once everyone understands, then when we're having those moments of, okay, this patient's delirious, they're agitated, what can we do? we can really collaborate and we can say the respiratory therapist can say, okay, let's see if I can change some ventilator settings to make them more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the nurse can say, you know, I know that, um, they like this kind of music because I talk to their family or, um, the nurse can even say, let's get them out of bed. Maybe they're just sick of being in bed. Let's take them for a walk and see if that can wear them out so they can actually sleep. Um, the occupational therapist can say, let's, um, work on some more communication things and cognitive therapy so that they can better tell us what they need. So everyone has their own expertise, but it should all be collaborated in order to improve short and long-term
0: outcomes for patients. Wow, that sounds amazing. And I love that you brought in the fact that, you know, you wouldn't automatically think of dietary being involved, but there's so many interdisciplinary team members. I would even say spiritual care. Mm -hmm. possibly being um, very helpful in this process as well, especially if a patient's maybe anxious about it or needs extra emotional support in that. So let's say you're working with an ICU and they're starting this process. What barriers, like what challenges, do you see kind of the same things pop up that units deal with as they go through this change? Because impacting change at that level is, you know, it is a big process. You have to get buy-in from people. You have to, you know, uh, it's just a lot of steps that have to happen. Do you see certain obstacles and challenges that come up repeatedly? You know, I think
1: one of the main barriers is culture Mm -hmm. and that's rooted in knowledge. So that's why I start with webinars because I don't feel like we can implement protocols without teaching people the why. A lot of times we already have protocols kind of in place, or at least in our Um, electronic health records, Mm -hmm. nurses have to go through and chart a cam score to say if they're delirious or not, or chart if they give them sedation vacations, but it's not really in their hearts. They don't really understand why if, if a team still thinks that sedation is sleep, that it's more humane and that it's impossible to have patients awake and walking on the ventilator, Mm -hmm. then there's no way to move it forward. And so that's where I start is let's get everyone together and let's talk about what it's actually like for patients let's talk about the research. Let's talk about what's possible and how to get there. And then we can talk about how and and what we need to change in our practices. I think one of the other barriers too, is even when we've implemented some of these practices or some of these protocols, we're still starting sedation automatically on patients. And I think that is so much more difficult because we start delirium. Mm -hmm. So if we, don't start delirium. If we let them wake up after intubation and see what they need and we mobilize them right away, then we are saving so much harm and work for everyone involved. So, for example, pac- teams will tell me, well, we don't have enough staff for that. Um, and I think what they're thinking of is having delirious, thrashing patients trying to pull their breathing tubes right. mm-hmm. and people that are extremely weak after weeks of laying in bed. And thinking of how to get a ceiling lift to lift these huge uh, adult newborns essentially essentially out of bed and try to help them sit up when they can't even hold their own head up. Right. That is so much work. And that takes, what, five to seven people to Mm -hmm. do. The difference that I'm advocating for is that depending on what is going on with the patient, right? But they should receive some sort of mobility hours to 24 hours after intubation. If you never let the patient atrophy then they're going to be able to get themselves out of bed. So this awake and walking ICU has a COVID-19 unit right now. And almost every single patient is awake and walking almost throughout the time of the ventilator. There are exceptions, right? When they hit the point of having to be paralyzed, paralyzed because mm-hmm. they can't oxygenate with movement, you're in a hard point, right? But at least yeah. they've been mobilized. They've been walking. They've been doing stair steps, arm bikes, leg bikes up until that point. So that when they spend a few days to, you know, like a week, proned or not moving even paralyzed they're not starting with two weeks of atrophy already Mm -hmm. right and so as soon as they can be turned back over and they can oxygenate with movement again boom they're they're moving them again so that spares so much danger and again work so a lot of these patients are standby assist the nurse can kind of hold the tubing while the patient gets themselves out of bed and gets into the chair while they wait for physical therapy to come work with them.
0: That's amazing.
1: But they've made them safer, right? So I think we, and this is a whole, this is a nursing problem or culture thing within nursing, not just in the ICU, but in the, on the floor too. We are so afraid of our liability for falls mm-hmm. that we keep patients in bed. Yep. When we should be so afraid of falls that we should get patients out of bed, we exactly. create fall risks by leaving patients in bed. And okay. that is especially true in the ICU. So if we think, okay, this patient's newly intubated, how do I want to be able to treat them in, in a few days, in a few weeks? Do I want to be lifting them out of the bed or that I want, do I want them to be able to get themselves out of bed? And that should guide our choices in that moment. Okay, this patient walked into the hospital. Now they're on a ventilator. They have more, control, more support for their pulmonary function. Their blood, lungs should be able to work better now that they have support from the ventilator. So Makes why sense. not?
0: Yeah. Walk them. I love it. I love it. And what you said about the fall risk, just it's a it's a little bit of a nursing pet peeve of mine because (laughs) I swear every single patient is classified as a fall risk. And I work in the recovery room right now. So, you know, I'll take patients up to the floor and give handoff report. And then, you know, if I'm still there charting for a little bit after I do that, I I, you know, I hear the nurse orienting the patient to the unit and the procedures and inevitably don't get out of bed without calling me on patients that just came in to have their gallbladder taken out, like they're fine. Uh, But this culture of immobility is, it's so deep throughout the entire hospital system. I did an episode with a
1: CNA that was working in the COVID unit in Arizona. And it was mostly a step-down COVID unit, I guess you could call it, where everyone was on high-flow cannula. And they had a protocol in which anyone on high-flow cannula could not get out of bed. And she was seeing these patients that came in extremely functional, you know, in their fifties, wanting to get themselves to the toilet. And she was not allowed to help them. Wow. And so even though they were never on the ventilator after two weeks of laying there breathing 40 times a minute with no feeding tube, no nutrition going, and then no, never getting out of the bed, they couldn't get out of the bed and they couldn't go home. They had to go to this nursing home where that was completely preventable and also the dignity of it.
0: Yeah. I imagine absolutely. my
1: dad's in his early sixties. He's extremely functional, runs his own business. Um, I can't imagine what that would do to his morale to have him stuck in a bed, having to use a bedpan mm-hmm. because he had a little bit of an increased work of breathing. Yeah. And then to not be able to wipe his own backside. Yeah, you,
0: exactly. It, it's inhumane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just, it, this takes, it just goes into so many different areas. And I I love the, context that you bring to it, and how you've reminded those listening, even new, uh, new students, new nurses that you do have a voice and you can enact change. So I think that's absolutely incredible. I'm super inspired. And next time I have a patient, who gets intubated, maybe we'll just wait and see before we automatically start sedating them. Because um, yeah, that's just such a great reminder. Anything else you want to add? Where can students go to learn more about this? Because I think you probably piqued their interest as well. Well, I, I would be remiss if I didn't
1: mention Polly Bailey. She should be the idol of every nurse and student, every nurse. She is my mentor. She's now a nurse practitioner. But back in the 90s, she was the nurse that started all of this, and back in the '90s, we started being able to treat patients longer on the ventilator with higher ventilator settings, being treating, treating patients like COVID-19 patients with ARDS, and they were, you know, they were essentially treating them like we are in COVID-19 patients. They were paralyzing everybody, giving the deepest sedation for the longest periods of time, and that was normal. They didn't know anything. They didn't have any research on what happened to those patients after. They were just trying to keep them alive for the moment. And Polly followed out a survivor that was in her own community and she watched her at home. She was a mother in her 30s. It took her a year to get up the stairs. Oh my God. And gosh. her husband was helping to help her with a bedpan in the bed. Um, she couldn't take care of her children, let alone herself. And she was extremely traumatized and dysfunctional from it. And she went back to her medical director, who was Terry Klimmer at the time. He's in my episode two. And she said, we can't do this to people. What are we saving them for if we're ruining them, their lives? What if we didn't let them atrophy? What if we let them be awake and mobile on the ventilator? And of course, Dr. Klemmer thought that was crazy talk. And yet he says that he trusted nursing instinct. He knew Polly was a good nurse and he knew she would keep her patients safe. So he let her experiment and she found that it was possible. That once they cleared out the delirium, patients could be calm and even mobile on the ventilator. Yet, this was a shock trauma ICU with seasoned ICU nurses that weren't going to have it. They, did, they were, did not believe in it and didn't want the culture change. And so they, this hospital system started another hospital. And so they started a respiratory unit and Polly got to spearhead it as a nurse. And they hired nurses from nursing homes with clean slates. They taught Mm -hmm. them the rest of the ICU stuff, but they had no expectations for automatic medically induced comas. And they found obviously that when they were able to get people right away, right after intubation to be awake and moving on the ventilator, everything was better. And so that's what they've continued throughout the decade. So they've been doing this for 25, almost 30 years. Wow. It's been an evolution, but it's been because of one nurse having instinct, trusting it, having the vision, and Polly Bailey was the first one to publish a study in 2007 showing that it was safe and feasible to walk patients on the mechanical ventilation during acute respiratory failure. So I know that nursing students feel like they have to go in and accept everything they're told when they go in there, but that's how we've gotten into this rut, is because we pass these myths, this misinformation down generation to generation between us as nurses. But new nurses are coming in with better tools to understand and utilize research. So I just want you to know it can be one nurse that puts the brakes on, that says this is not evidence-based. I'm here to practice evidence-based medicine. Let's collaborate to figure out how we can change patient outcomes like it shows in the research. And if you want support, there's the podcast. My podcast is called Walking Home from the ICU. Contact me. We have a, a Facebook support group for I call them ICU revolutionists. There are people around the world that are trying to change cultures in their units, and they're doing amazing things. And they've been on episodes throughout the podcast. The podcast has many survivors, clinicians, researchers, sharing all these, these different elements of this process of care. Um, and I am happy to talk to anyone that, that wants to bring the change or any new graduates wondering how they can um,
0: elevate the nursing profession. Fantastic. I love it. I love everything we talked about today. This was inspiring in so so many ways. So I will link to everything that you just mentioned so that people can find your podcast easily, find the Facebook group easily. And is there a website or anything that goes with it? Yeah, my website is under construction right now. Okay. So um
1: I will give you an email address. They're happy to I'm happy to have them reach out. There's also a blog. So let okay. me read a blog so
0: that um that's where I put all the links to all the research that Perfect. is referenced. Okay. The all right. So we'll link all that for you guys so that you can get even more of this fantastic stuff. So I want to thank you so very much. Absolutely incredible. Thanks so much, Maureen. Appreciate it. So there yeah. you have it, you guys. If that piqued your interest in critical care in ICU delirium, in increasing mobility in ventilated patients and not keeping them sedated all the time, I want you to go and check out her podcast, Walking Home from the ICU. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you again soon. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.